As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for the Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Carol Masser, along with Manus Cranny and Katie Greifeld. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance on demand at Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and of course, on the Bloomberg Business app. All right. Well, let's see what our next guest has to say, because she knows everything about the U.S. consumer. Dana Telsey is back with us, CEO and Chief Research Officer at Telsey Advisory Group. Dana, thank you so much. So appreciate you coming uh, on with us again. Uh, the U.S. consumer, they do like to go out and shop, uh, me included. Um, how are we doing? What are we hearing about the day after Christmas shopping? Are you getting any early reads? Yes, we just got an early read within the past hour. MasterCard Spending Pulse came out with their data from November 1st through December 24th. Holiday season sales up 3.1%, slightly below their forecast of 3.7%. And keep in mind, it goes through December 24th. Many of the other forecasters out there either go through December or through January. That's coming in at the lower end of the 3 to 5% range. But as you mentioned earlier, it's still up. Consumers are still spending. We've got gift cards that need to be redeemed. And overall, some of the interesting data that came out of it is the fact that apparel was up, online was stronger than in-store sales, jewelry was down, and restaurants that focus on experience, you saw restaurants and grocery being up. Yeah, I'm just coming back from an overseas trip, and that's what I did. I ate out a lot uh, and enjoyed it rather than shopping. But having said this, Dana, you're the expert. You've seen the cycles, you know, coming off the pandemic. What do those numbers tell you about the health of the U.S. consumer? I think the U.S. consumer is healthy. I think they're being very cautious in their spending. And the change that I've seen, even in the past year, we've seen a moderation in spending across all income levels. From high end to low end, that spending is moderated with much more cautious and discerning consumer. You think about some of the things that have changed. The luxury goods spend is lower than what it has been. You're seeing apparel being spending spend very discerning. Jewelry's been weak. It's it's expected that in 2024, jewelry will have more of an uplift given we'll get back to more normalization and engagements post-COVID. But for the most part, it's very discerning spend and the retailers planned appropriately. Discounts and promotions weren't as severe as they had been pre-pandemic. Dana, good to see you this morning. It's interesting that the, the fresh data that you have is just a little bit lighter uh, than perhaps the estimates. Give us your take in terms of 
hedonism, as UBS have called it. Never go short the hedonism of the U.S. consumer. When you see credit card balances at over a trillion dollars on a great proportion of buy now, pay later, is that hedonistic behavior that can cause us a problem in the near term? Or do you just look through it and go, actually, they're fully employed, we've got full employment, things are good, stop worrying about the credit card balances and the buy now, pay later? I think overall, one of the things about the U.S. consumer, they continue to exhibit strength. I would have thought that as we went through this year, you would have had a greater moderation in spend from the lower and middle income. But exactly what you just mentioned is the strength of employment, inflation coming down, are giving them the ability to spend. They may not be spending as much as they did two years ago, given the stimulus that they everyone benefited from, but they're still spending more than you may have thought. And now the lower rates, the stronger job market, that if you want a job, you can get a job, and that your wages are going up. And frankly, wage growth is pretty substantial with inflation easing. I think just the U.S. consumer is an optimistic consumer, even though the rate of spend is not as great as it was in 21 and even in 22 in many instances. Dana, it's really interesting to hear you say that because, of course, one of the big questions has been how do you have the Fed hiking rates by 500 basis points without too much pain? And it sounds like when it's coming to that consumer spend that that can actually continue here, that actually maybe we did get through this tightening cycle without that sort of associated pain that was widely expected. It does feel that way. I mean, you certainly have had categories that have been weak. You take a look at housing and things related to the home. That's been weak. You look at luxury goods, which has gotten weaker. But one of the data points to watch is, while year over year it could be weak, when you look back to 2019 to today, even luxury goods sales are up 50% plus. So that consumer, if they want a job, can get a job. But I think also one of the toughest things for retailers, we're seeing more confidence in their ability to project profits than sales. I think you're going to continue to see retailers being very cautious on sales growth. I think we don't have the tourism that we've had in the past and that the orders that many of the wholesale accounts or department stores are placing continue to be cautious with vendors. I, don't, I think that no one's expecting a rip-roaring retail environment go forward. And uh, I'm taking a look at the Telsey Advisory Group's 2024 top picks. I always appreciate a year-ahead list. I want to talk about the consumer technology category. Your top pick there, you only have one, and it's Amazon. Who can stand up to Amazon at this point? I mean, certainly what you're going to get from Amazon, and Amazon is your online choice. But when you're thinking about discounters, whether it's Target, whether it's Five Below, you take a look at Dollar Tree, look at off-price, where many of the off-pricers overall have had same-store sales of 5 to 6% plus. They're getting the benefit of the trade-down customer. So I'm watching in-store sales very carefully. Don't belie the fact that in-store sales continue to remain very important. That's what I was going to ask you because it's funny. I'm looking at Dollar Tree. They're down about 3%. I feel like there's been some struggling. When you, you know, not all retail is the same. Who do you think is most vulnerable in this environment, Dana? 
I think when you're watching where the vulnerabilities are, it's some of the retailers overall who are too overloaded on inventory and who haven't innovated or don't have value. When you think about what we did for our 2024 outlook, who had the hallmarks of product newness, innovation, and value? In apparel and footwear, it's Birkenstock and Ralph Lauren. And off-price, you're going to get all the off-pricers winning, including Burlington and TJX. When I think about specialty retail out there, I think it's companies like Bath and Body Works and European Wax. And when you think about the discounters, like we mentioned, Five Below, Dollar Tree, and Target with their margin recovery story. But don't leave Walmart out. Walmart continues to be a share gainer, both with grocery and with goods. Did you want to say something about Birkenstock? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, they're not the most uh, aesthetically pleasing shoes. I'll just leave it at that. Well, let's put it this way. Do you I know find something very aesthetic? You know, yeah. Hey, listen, Barbie Warren. That's Pink true. Ones. Just going to say, Katie Greifeld. That was after she left Barbie World, though. Okay, so even better. Yeah, that's true. That's just true. We've gone into Barbie World. Okay. <laughs> Dana Telsey, I agree. Listen, the runways, right? They end up putting Birkenstocks, Crocs, like they go everywhere. Uh, Dana Telsey, you're a gem uh, of Telsey Advisor Thank Group. Thank you so much. Happy holidays and happy new year to you. The International Trade Commission found Apple infringed on patents from Massimo. The USTR now saying two patents were infringed, including the one from that company. So great setup to see what Dan Ives, who definitely likes Apple, see what he has to say. He's senior equity analyst at Wedbush, joining uh, Katie uh, Manis and myself here in studio. Great to have you great here. Great to be here. Happy holidays. You too. Great um, to be here. Is it going to be a happy year for Apple? It feels like it's going to get off to a rough start. I think it's time to get out the popcorn because, in my opinion, this is the next stage of, I think, the growth phase in Cupertino. And I think, look, if you look what's happening... So what, how do you, like, factor in this kind of stuff? I can't buy a watch. I need a new watch, and I can't buy it right now. Look, we're talking less than 1% of disruption from Apple Watch, you know, in terms of in the actual quarter. And I think, look, it just speaks to they're going to have patent issues like this on healthcare. But there's a renaissance of growth on iPhone units, services, double digits. And that's why I think a lot of the bears right now, they're deep in those caves in hibernation mode. I think a year from now, we have a $4 trillion mark cap on Apple. You say the bears had a great fictional story, okay? A Netflix fictional story. A Netflix fictional story. We <laughs> okay. all want to be in it. Not Apple I gotta, Plus? <laughs> I got to hand it to you. This shirt just screams, you know, full full of confidence, <laughs> full of vigor. But you look at the China story. So make, make sense of this for us. How do you get to $4 trillion when you still got the government pushing back mm -hmm. against Apple products? It was a headline just in December. Mm -hmm. I mean, is that myth or is that a headwind? I think it's a headwind, and ultimately my view in terms of China is that I'm not saying it's roses and champagne in Beijing with Apple, but we are seeing growth. And that's something we've seen come out of Asia checks even over the last week, because you have 100 million iPhones in China in a window of an upgrade opportunity. As those upgrade, mm -hmm. and look, for Huawei, it's a good phone, but realistically, it's an iPhone 12. Mm. I'm saying from an actual functionality perspective. Mm. So I do think that it's a headwind they have to contend with, but it is the hearts and lungs of the Apple story. And that's why a lot of the bears at 500 billion, a trillion, trillion and a half, 
have two trillion. Well, there would no. It's, it's all about the China. Three trillion now. It's all three trillion. I think going to four trillion. It's always about that big bad wolf, the China story, and the, the actuality. China has actually been fueling the engine. Well, let's talk about what the bears are saying right now, because they're saying you think about in terms of the product lineup that Apple really hasn't had a hit since the AirPods, and that was all the way back in 2016. So you talk about this new growth, but from the product lineup, where is that going to come from? Well, first off, the install base, it's unparalleled. It's the best install base in the world. So just from an install base perspective, you have 250 million iPhones in a window of an upgrade opportunity. I think that's why iPhone 15 so far, Christmas came early, a strong holiday season. But for 2024, and German's talked about this as well, I believe you're going to have not just new phones that come out from an iPhone 16, but we believe you're going to have the Apple, the iPhone app store, which is going to be an AI app store focused on AI apps. That's going to be something that's going to be incremental for services. And I think that's very important. You combine it with Vision Pro, and we believe more and more products coming out, it flex the muscles. Dan, is there a bear story, though, on Apple? I mean, I think if Tom Keenan was here, and I know this is how we feel, we are an Apple family. And when somebody goes to buy something, like, no, sorry, you can't do that. It's got to be an Apple product because that's been our infrastructure. That's our network. No green text bubbles. Okay? Are, None of that. Exactly. Although there's an app that I think can uh, pull people. But I just, that installed base, I'm looking sure. at, what, 2024 revenue estimate of $397 billion. Sure. Like, every time the Apple numbers cross, they're off the charts. Even and if the growth isn't significant, there's still that installed base is enough to keep a lot of momentum going. And if Keen was here, would, would he be focused on and, and and, and he I think, kinda is. We just no, have him under and the Keen's table. here, just like Matt. Like, I'm an incarnation of Tom Keen. Like, <laughs> I, this is the hologram. I am, I am Keen hologram. It's an AI. It's AI generated. It's a, good uh-huh. morning. But, exactly. but is there no, a bear story but, but, for but, Apple? But, but look, realistically, it's about value. Look, if you look at valuation, you look at the cash flow generation of Apple that we're going to see over the coming years. The EBITDA margins are expanding. Now, I think the bear story. It's look a lot of the bears. They just look at their spreadsheet. On Park Ave and in their, you know, in their tower, saying this is an expensive. So you don't stock. have a bear story for Apple at all. Because to me, the bear story—it's valuation, it's China, and I think at that point, it's it's a headwind, but it's more fictional Netflix story than reality that's going to hurt them. And then it's just more competition, but it also it comes down to valuation, and that's why this year, I think the bears—they mm-hmm. focus so much on valuation instead of the actual underlying growth story that's happening not just for Apple, but we believe it's the start of a new tech bull market for tech. I mean, and this is this is your thesis for next year, which is about, I mean, 2023 was a year in which every time we saw an AI story evolve, Microsoft. Wait, we were talking about AI this year? Well, just, <laughs> I'm a, just, j- just a little. AI and Ozempic. Really. But if you didn't have a, yeah, I know. I've got, yeah. Um, so, <laughs> tempted by Ozempic rather than the treadmill. But on a slightly more serious note, cloud and AI have been the dominant forces, as well as balance sheets in tech. I put those three together, and let's uh, let's just put Apple aside for a moment. Cloud and AI, how do I disaggregate who's going to perform well in this? What's going to make a cloud A grade and an AI A grade stock? Yeah, and I think you hit on and what's really a key point. If you look at what's happened with Nadella and Redmond at the top of that mountain from a cloud perspective, now this is more monetization for the hyperscale players, from Microsoft, for Amazon, for Google. We believe for every $100 of cloud spend the last four or five years, there's 35 to 40 incremental AI spend. That's why I'd say for when you look at Microsoft, mm-hmm. you look at Google, you, this is going to be just a new frontier. 
year of growth. And then, of course, you have the godfather of AI, Jensen, and NVIDIA. Mm-hmm. This is really just starting what we view as a 1995 moment. The it's godfather the, of AI. It's, <laughs> look, Jensen's Top the godfather. Top performing stock in the S&P 500. There you but, go. But it's year. the biggest tech transformation in 30 years. Haven't seen it since 1995. Star of the internet. And we believe this is actually the beginning of the next phase of this bull market. I just want to know, are there a million AI ETFs that have all of a sudden come on? You know, you there actually, market, so. uh, there were, there's a few dozen that were launched way before uh, we started talking about AI around this time last year. But I do want to switch gears here and talk about EV demand, because this has been uh, one of the stories that's really emerged. That it just feels like all of these automakers really uh, miscalculated how much demand there would be for EVs. And now you're seeing those production targets get cut. How does that factor into what how you're thinking about Tesla? Is that a bear case for Tesla, or does Tesla just command more of maybe a shrinking pie? Yeah, Katie, I think that's a great point. Look, right now it's Tesla's world, everyone else paying rent when it comes to electric vehicles. And I think they're doubling down. You look what's happened to Detroit, GM, Ford actually peeling back a little from electric vehicles, some of the foreign automakers. Look, demand's definitely softened. Price wars have come through, but a lot of those storms have now passed. I think for, for Tesla specifically, unit volume looks strong in China. I think there's going to be a, a record quarter for China you know, in terms of Q4. You go into next year, I think demand actually starts to accelerate a bit relative to where people thought. I think for the overall industry, it's still a massive transformation, but now you're starting to maybe peel back a bit in terms of, okay, this is not going to 40% penetration, maybe it's 25-30. Dan, 30 seconds. China is the rallying cry of the bears when it comes to Apple. So, too, when it comes to Tesla. You think about all those Chinese EV makers. How does Tesla compete overseas? They've done it. I mean, I think a lot of the price war, it was, look, this was a poker move for the ages by Musk. Prices focus on units, and that's why right now this has been flex the muscles in Beijing for not just Tesla, but of course for Apple, despite bear noise. Um, you know, before we started, we showed a piece on drones. <laughs> just real quickly, 25 seconds. Is there a drone plane for drone play for you? I mean, all of the company, Amazon's in it, Walmart's, everybody's in it, and there's individual startups. Yeah, look, I think that's past. I remember being a CES years ago. You don't buy drone it, then. Yeah, I think that's. Look, that's why you have to separate. <laughs> Matt is like, yes, yes. No, but you separate <laughs> hype from the reality. There's, there's parts of that market that are growth. Yeah. But you look at AI, this is the Super Bowl in terms of uh, tech market. We're going to have a bull tech market in 2025, too? I think this bull tech market goes, we believe, for another two years. That's why right now it's getting the popcorn out. Wow. <laughs> that's a lot of popcorn. All right. Always fun to talk yeah, with great. you. Yeah, great. Thanks for having so me. So appreciate Thank it. Thanks for coming in the studio. Thank Happy you. New Year. Dan you Ives, too. of course, of Wedbush. Uh, check out his research and, of course, his calls on things like Apple and just really the tech market overall. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising healthcare costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? 
And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. All right, let's see what Matt Miskin has to say about all of this. Co-Chief Investment Strategist John Hancock, Investment Management, joining us just outside of Boston. Matt, great to have you here on this Tuesday. Um, there's a lot that could come at us at 2024, but as you look back at 2023, are there, I don't know, trends, um, narratives that you think will, no doubt about it, carry out, uh, over into 2024? Yeah, thanks, Carol. And really, the last two months defined 2023 markets. <laughs> and it was all really around uh, Powell's pivot. So in September, they were forecasting another rate hike in December. Uh, and then actually no rate cuts into 2024. That really changed significantly. So now, of course, in November, he went to no hike in December. And then in December, really pivoted. I think about the pivot foot. I mean, it almost looked like a travel here where that pivot foot moved because they they did a one Powell did a 180 from his tone in September to November. And it, I, I look at small cap stocks in particular as the biggest beneficiary, down 5% on a year to be, year-to-date basis before November 1st, and then ending. Right now, they're up 17% year-to-date. Again, in the futures market, even though this is a quiet week, small caps looking up the highest in this morning's Talk trading. Talk about a 180, right? Exactly. Do you think that that's where we go next? And I mean, if you look at some of the perform, you, you look at some of the performance on the U.S. equity markets, just just top lines, S and P 500, 23 uh, percent on on the year. There, there it is over the past two months. So more than 50 percent of the move was done in the last two months. You said the optimism is already very much baked into stocks, both in earnings and estimates and valuations. The math, the math for you is not compelling. So if it's not compelling, there's the Russell, by the way, up over the past two months, up 22. The math not being compelling, what does that do? Do I stall? Do I draw down? What, what happens? Do we shudder in January? Because the bond market is convinced we're on a slice and dice from the Fed. Right. Yeah, I mean, Russell 2000 earnings are down 17% this year. Prices are up 17 I mean, it, one of the ones I love the most is, is technology. And Carol was talking about earnings and loving earnings. I love earnings, too. <laughs> technology earnings are up about 5% this year. That's not bad. S&P 500 tech, 5%. Actually, that beats most of the world in earnings. The companies are up price-wise 55%. So that just shows you how much this has been multiple expansion versus earnings. It's all about Powell this year. And it really all came down to the last two months in this pivot. I don't think that next year is going to be that meaningful as it relates to everything relied to the Fed. I think fundamentals going to matter more. Economic data is going to matter more. And I think the Fed, the Fed is in a tough position because the soft data has led you blind this year. It's all been you've had to really focus on the hard data. The thing is, the hard data lags the soft data. And so they just have to wait. They have to be data dependent, Manus, <laughs> just like you said. So 
Um, right now, they're going to wait on that, and I think they're going to have to wait right to the last minute to cut, and I think that may be too late, and they're going to have to cut more aggressively than actually the market thinks. Well, Matt, I don't really like earnings. I really like uh, talking <laughs> about the macro, and it's been convenient for me because, to your point, you've seen equities be, really be driven uh, by the macro, even at the single stock level. But I want to talk about the different psychology between the equity market and the bond market because I love this line in your note that stocks are stories, bonds are math. Talk us through that a little bit what you mean there. Yeah, so with the bond market, you know, it's going to be your income. And income right now, even though it's changed a lot in the last two months, I mean, when we were writing that, you know, a month ago, and we were like 5 6% in high-quality bonds, this is amazing. Um, we've been looking for high-quality income at these levels for years, and finally we're getting it. It's still about 4 to 5%. Um, we think actually 4 to 5% is an income stream where you can depend on that and high-quality bonds will be an attractive return stream into next year. And we've been talking about cash, right? $6 trillion of money markets on the sidelines. Well, what is that yield going to be like next year? If it's 5 now, that could be down to 4 or 3% depending on how much the Fed cuts. And then subsequent year, it could be even lower. We don't want to have variable interest streams. We want to fixed interest streams. And that's about the math. Math, we like that, the factual parts of that. Uh, right now, stocks look like your high multiple, high earnings estimates, mm -hmm. um, and sentiment is, is all about soft landing. That can change quickly into 2024. Matt, I just want to follow up quickly on that money market point that you raised, because uh, Manis and I have been batting this around all morning. Where does that money belong to, that cash that's come into money market funds? When it comes out, does that belong to risk assets, or is this maybe stickier than usual when you think about the banking story? Yeah, Katie, what we looked at when we've seen you know, money market assets like this before, we trend it over time. And what we've seen is money market assets usually rise going into a recession. They actually accelerate and everybody sells right at the low of the market. And that's actually the peak in money market assets is the trough in the S&P 500. Hmm. Happened in um, 2008, happened in March of 2020. And now we're building, building, building. And then so where it happens on the flip side of that, I think it actually finds a home in a balanced portfolio. Stocks and bonds usually get the biggest beneficiary. Uh, bonds do have some inflows this year, about $100 billion taxable fixed income. That's the highest outside of money markets, but it's still a fraction. A 10% of what money markets took in, fi taxable fixed income put in. And that's why I struggle with the bond sentiment. We're not seeing that overly uh, aggressive bond sentiment or bullish bond sentiment. We actually hear investors that are still pretty cautious. And they're saying, we're going to wait till next year to buy bonds. And the thing is, bond yields have moved really fast, a lot faster than usual. Mm. And we don't want to have those yields go away before you actually get an opportunity to take advantage. Well, of that's what I was thinking, you know, for such a big period, I feel like we we're saying, listen, look what the bond market can give you at this point. So why not lock it in? Less volatility, less, you know, concerns over, uh, you know, riskier assets such as stocks or elsewhere. But having said that, you know, you're looking at your 401k for those who are lucky enough to have one and saying, I wow. I just signed up for one. <laughs> well, good for you. But you look at those equity returns. And mind you, a lot of it was, you know, towards the second half of the year and just in the last month or two. Um, having said that, how do you justify the bond story when you can many times over if you just easily throw it into the into an index fund again? Yeah. And I mean, you know, I have conversations with friends and family and they're all saying, well, how do I own these bonds? I'm going to go all <laughs> in on AI 
or, you know, whatever the thing that's up the most, I'm going to get more of that. And, and it's just, it goes back to a behavioral finance um, principles that we learn about where, you know, you, you always want to have the thing that's performing the best. You want to sell the thing that's that's down the most in your 401k or portfolios. And it's, it's to us about rebalancing in times like this where you have such a huge run up in stocks versus bonds or whatever other asset classes, more disciplined approach. Um, so we're looking to rebalance, trim some risk into next year. We think, again, a lot of the run-up has been built in uh, to the equity sides of portfolios. Rebalance that into higher quality parts of portfolios, like high quality fixed income, and get that income stream into next year. Yeah. Um, so that's how I would, we would look at it. Yeah. Uh, some things never change, right, in terms of either a balanced portfolio and the importance of uh, bond markets uh, in your strategy. All right, listen, we got to leave it there. Matt, thank you so much. Happy New Year. Matt Miskin of John Hancock Investment Management. We appreciate uh, your time on this. Let's bring in uh, Tom Cesarius. He is uh, the head of fixed income research at Strategus, uh, a Baird company. Good morning. Good to see you. Happy holidays. Yeah, happy holidays. So the U.S. bond market pulled it back from the jaws of defeat, delivered a 3% return. So does that set me up for a more magnificent 2024 or 388? Am I all priced in for 160 basis points of cuts? My run is done. Good morning. Yeah, well, it's going to depend whether we have a recession next year. Uh, and, and to tell you the truth, that is very hard to predict at this point in time because Washington, D.C. has decided that they're going to run this U.S. economy at full employment at all costs, which means it's going to be very difficult to get the consumer to pull back particularly in the second half of the year. So we have a seasonal weak spot coming in the next few months, we'll say late January to April, where the U.S. could dip into a recession, albeit very shallow. If that's the case, then expect those rate cuts to materialize and the bond market to push yields lower. If that does not happen, that is you do not have that seasonal weak spot transition into a rise in unemployment, it's going to be hard for the bond market to rally further from here. Okay, I, I like what you say. They're going to run this economy at, at, at full speed as much as they can. What does that mean? I mean, what are the additional risks? One of the big debates that we were having before Christmas was about issuance and about indigestion in the bond market. So so let's just square that away. We didn't get indigestion, really, on these bond auctions at the back end of the year. What's my risk in 2024 of indigestion? Uh, Very high, Uh, Mm. but it's going to depend on what the Fed does. And because of that, I do believe 2024 is going to be the year that we have a very serious discussion in the financial markets about the Federal Reserve credibility as an independent entity. Because if you look at the economy coming into 2024, it's still in a really decent spot. The unemployment rate is very low. Mm -hmm. It's hard to justify rate cuts at this point in time, certainly by March. Now, with that said, the market's pricing in 150 basis points of rate cuts here. Feels too aggressive to you? Too aggressive at full employment, absolutely. Yeah. Maybe 50, maybe 75 at full employment just to kind of fine-tune monetary policy. But 150, that's a very steep amount of cuts for something that is otherwise, as of right now, not a recession. Tom, I feel like one of our favorite drinking games of the year was data-dependent. Like, how many times we heard the Fed remind us, no matter what the narrative was, we're watching the data points, even with what the the market's expecting uh, a pretty aggressive Fed moving to cut rates. Do we need to watch those data points very closely? We do. And I would continue to watch wages because this is the one I, I've always said Good average point. hourly earnings or employment cost index are the most important ones. Obviously, CPI and PCE are going to tell us whether the Fed has room to cut. But wages are going to tell us whether CPI or inflation are going to reaccelerate once those cuts hit. And here's the important point. Wages are growing at 4%. If the Fed's target is 2%, how are you going 
going to stay there if rate cuts begin to culminate? How are you going to stay at 2% if wages are pulling inflation higher? Productivity has to be rough algebra 2%. I don't see that right now. Uh, it's really uh, it's interesting. So then what worries you in terms of the economic story? Is it that we are all just expecting a much more aggressive Fed? What is it? Is it the expectation or what? So I've got two worries going into 2024. One is the consumer is running at exhaustion, building up enormous amounts of credit card debt. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing bigger and bigger seasonal pullbacks, oddly enough, in January, February, March. And again, we'll see them in September and October. So the consumer is binging from May to August and then binging again from Halloween until New Year's. And then every six months, the pullback gets bigger and bigger. Okay. So patching that over with Band-Aid stimulus is require more and more stimulus. But the problem with that is you're keeping the economy at full employment right. artificially. And that means structurally inflation is going to continue to be elevated. I want to actually go back to the politics of the Fed and this discussion that could be coming when it comes to the independence of the Fed. Because you think about uh, you know the Fed cutting by March. In your view, that's not justified. Is the Fed really political or is it just a case it's got to do something? Well, I mean, you think about the argument that they're making, that they basically want to get out of restricted territory, that this isn't cutting to ease necessarily. It's just to make things a little bit less restrictive, get closer to neutral. Do you not buy that argument? Well, neutral might be 5% Fed funds rate, might be 475. It's not 350. Mm. That's the problem. Why is the bond market or the futures market pricing in such an extreme amount of rate cuts starting no later than March when the economy and and, and the equity markets, for example, are all projecting. Could be a long variable lag eventually arrives. <laughs> yeah, so, so something doesn't add up there. And I think the, the futures markets are starting to question the credibility of the Fed. And they're seeing, in particular, the Treasury is going to have a huge liquidity hiccup in the middle portion of the year if the Fed has not cut and has not stopped balance sheet reduction. So if you look out to June, you say rate cuts need to commence before then to help the Treasury. I'm glad you brought up the balance sheet because I feel like, I don't know, we don't talk about it enough. Uh, And if we enter into a situation where the Fed is cutting rates, that their justification is that we're just getting out of ultra-restrictive territory here, we can continue to run off the balance sheet. What does that mean for the bond market? How how does the Fed message that, and how is that actually received by the market? Because, I mean, at first glance, that would appear to be the Fed acting at, you know, opposite ends. Well, this is going to be very difficult for the Fed to deliver uh, on this politically, optically. It's going to look like they are being accommodative to the administration, no matter what they do, if they stop balance sheet reduction and they begin rate cuts. So they're going to have to communicate this. And the way they're probably going to communicate this is through the concept of ample reserves in the banking system, stopping balance sheet reduction because they're getting close to the point where there's going to be liquidity issues in the repo market. Mm -hmm. That will probably be how it's communicated, but that's going to be a questionable uh, argument, in my opinion. I was sort of mulling this over last night before before we came in this morning, we became a bit obsessed about the basis trade uh, in the last couple of months. Indeed, the Bank of England uh, didn't become obsessed by it. They, they, they very much noted it. Um, what is the risk uh, of some kind of an eruption or reversal of, of that basis trade? It's been around forever. We're just talking about it an awful lot more. So talk me through the risk from the basis trade, the risk from slightly faster faster positions. Well, the risk is obviously that you're having the liquidity providers become someone who is very large and dependent, and we're dependent on that one or two liquidity providers. Just like in the past, in the financial crisis, when we were dependent upon dealers, primary dealers yeah. as liquidity providers, now we're dependent in the treasury market on basis traders, to, and to some extent, primary dealers as well. So whenever you 
become over, overly reliant on one type of liquidity provider or another, you're always at risk. And the odds are eventually that liquidity provider is going to have a pullback, which will cascade into a full market liquidity hiccup. But by the way, that's what a market is supposed to do. Markets right. are supposed to seize up from time to time. Tom, last question. We've been so U.S. focused, understandably so, um, but I do wonder the global bond story. It's not just a U.S. bond story, but we're seeing this play out globally. How do you kind of factor all of that in? Well, I think the economic weakness is greater outside of the U.S., mm -hmm. and so as a consequence, you should see other central banks beginning to pivot themselves and eventually move towards rate cuts. You should also begin to see other central banks pulling back from balance sheet uh, reduction, as the Fed is eventually going to do. So there should be global support for the bond market markets uh, because you simply have a weakening global economy. Five seconds, you have a favorite global bond market? Uh, right now, the U.S. Ah. All right. All things pale the U.S. <laughs> Spl splendid position. Tom, thank you very much for being with us uh, this holiday. Tom Tazarius, uh, Strategus uh, on all things markets. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. certainly watching what's going on in the Middle East. Having said that, we've got a great guest. Norman Rule is former senior U.S. intelligence official and senior advisor of the Transnational Threats Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, joining us on this Tuesday. What do we need to be thinking about as we continue to watch these headlines and what seems to be escalation of the Middle East conflict, Norman? Good morning. Over the last several days, we've seen a multi-front escalation of violence through the region. We have the Israelis moving from a holding pattern in North Gaza to uh, Rafah and Khan Yunus, which is going to be the most difficult and challenging aspect of the war, but it's the location of the Hamas leadership, hostages, and a vast array of tunnels, perhaps twice as many as Israel anticipated. We've seen the attacks by Qatab, Hezbollah, and U.S. forces, and the U.S. response against uh, three sites in uh, in Iraq, that is demonstrating a capacity for retaliation, but not necessarily deterrence. We've also seen the Israeli believed uh, killing of the most senior Iranian Quds Force official since Qasem Soleimani. He was responsible, reportedly, for the shipment of Iranian weapons to proxies in Syria and Lebanon, and his death will require some sort of Iranian retaliation. And last, we've seen some modest continued action by the Houthis against shipping in the Red Sea. However, that's been offset by a growing number of ships from a variety of countries, and Maersk has 
re has resumed its shipping through the Red Sea, Arabian Sea area. They have indeed, uh, Norman. Uh, they've resumed that, and that is the coalition of, of up to 20 countries that are now affording protection. So I think that is quite progressive. I want to draw on your experience. Uh, you were the principal intelligence uh, officer uh, overseeing national intelligence policy on Iran and Iran-related issues. I sat down with the Iranian foreign minister when he was here at the UN. I specifically asked him about where you scaling up in terms of troops, in terms of ships, etc. Of course, he prevaricated uh, and accused me of perhaps interrogating him rather than interviewing him. The, the, the essence of it is this. When you look at where Iran are escalating via their proxies, where are the weakest links, as it were, for the coalition of the West? Is it in Lebanon? Is that the highest flashpoint that you can see? Or is it this one-off reprisal from the US into Iraq? Where is the weakest link for the coalition at the moment? The most important area for focus, I continue to believe, would be the Red Sea. We have to watch for the possibility of the Houthis using explosive drone boats, perhaps mining, and perhaps believing that the retaliatory capacity of the coalition is uh, weak because it is untested. And the U.S. is now pretty much advised it's not interested in escalation of regional conflicts. So I would look there as a result, as a response for, uh, from the proxies. We do have the Lebanese challenge. An Israeli soldier has died today from wounds he incurred from an anti-tank rocket a few days ago. Uh, but the Lebanese Hezbollah appears to be constrained by its own perception that it doesn't want to be involved in a conflict that could bring strategic damage to its own equities. And Norm, since October 7th, of course, the Hamas attack on Israel, the guiding thought here has been that uh, the administration, really governments worldwide, don't want that to broaden into a wider conflict. But you think about uh, what's happened over the past few weeks, of course, with the Red Sea and now these drone attacks in Iraq. Is that starting to look inevitable? Well, what's happening is that the world posture of, of opposing any expansion of the conflict is inevitably eroding the deterrent capacity of the international community and collective security. Uh, Iran's proxies are testing red lines. They're seeing that some red lines are pink. And they're also normalizing a certain scale of violence. There was a time when medium-range ballistic missile shots from Yemen to Israel would have seen as something to, to spark in a regional conflict. And now it really doesn't make the news after after a few hours. So the normalization of violence is a very troubling issue. Hey, Norm, there's another story on the Bloomberg uh, coming out late last night that Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu outlined three prerequisites, excuse me, to achieving peace in the war with Hamas, uh, the destruction of the group, the demilitarization of Gaza, and for Palestinian society to be de-radicalized. Uh, those seem pretty, pretty rough uh, metrics to hit. Having said that, there is a lot of pressure on Israel to end this. What is the likely outcome? Is the pressure building that you think um, there could be some kind of truce created sooner rather than later? The head of Hamas has uh, made an announcement also during this period in which he has uh, refused surrender and has made some outlandish complaint, uh, claims on Israeli losses. When you look at Prime Minister Netanyahu's statement, the most troubling aspect is actually the de-radicalization of Gaza society. That is something that would take months, if not years. And the international community doesn't have a lot of experience with this, although Saudi Arabia and the Emirates do for their own, for their own world. I think it's also notable that Netanyahu did not mention 
mention the hostages, and he's come under significant pressure from Israeli hostage family for not doing more to bring back uh, the roughly 100-plus hostages who remain in Hamas hands. Will we hear a different rhetoric from the White House, from the Biden administration going into the new year? I don't think so. The White House will likely continue to express support for Israel's uh, right to defend itself and uh, to punish and eradicate Hamas's leadership. But also you will see continued pressure by the United States to bring in more humanitarian supplies. Israel will respond correctly that the more fuel that comes in, Hamas uses that fuel to retain control of tunnels and that extends the conflict. But I think you're going to see a continuation of the administration's narrative. Norm, is it though time for the administration to change that narrative? if you consider some of the pressure, the global pressure, and even pressure within uh, in, inside the United States? And that would be difficult. It would be difficult for Israel, which has uh, uh, gone through the October 7th massacre and the bad news on hostages and the losses of its own personnel to say that it would tolerate the continued existence of Hamas's top three military leaders uh, and the radicalization of a society on their border. I think what we should look for is the likelihood that Israel will increase its focus on eradicating the top three personnel in Hamas's military leadership or perhaps forcing them to flee country. All right, going to leave it there. We so appreciate your time this morning. A very important story for everybody on this Tuesday. Norm, thank you. Norm Rule of CSIS, uh, we really appreciate him joining us here. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Carol Masser, and this is Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.